Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 19th, 2011. I think I'm finally getting that. 2011, 2011, 20, uh, yeah. We're going to do a light version today. I've working on a big program for tomorrow. Hopefully we'll pull it off. Complete with a uh, Beth Moore sermon review. I've got that sermon nailed down. And uh, there's some other elements that I need to bring into it, so i got to finish my prep that way. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and apparently I'm just mumbling to myself. Uh, this is the program that dis- dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and, to, and help you to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said and done out there. And uh, like I was saying, as I was mumbling to myself during the opening music, Today's gonna we're gonna be doing a light version, and what when I, we do a light version that what we that means is is that we stick to a singular topic, and uh, usually listen to a good lecture on a topic. We are in the middle of well, we're approaching the end, but we we've been listening to a series of lectures del- delivered by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. He's one of the co-hosts of the White Horse Inn, and uh, he's my mentor theologically. Uh, if it wasn't for uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, I'd probably be an atheist today. But um, uh, he, theologically, he's my mentor, helped uh, keep me in the faith, and uh, gave me the gospel, and which ultimately uh, helped bring me into confessional Lutheranism, for which I am eternally, eternally grateful. And uh, he's been—we've uh, been listening to a series of lectures that he's delivered, college-level type stuff on Martin Chemnitz's book, uh, The Two Natures in Christ— Fantastic stuff. Uh, the off-the-cuff remarks that he makes are uh, just make it <laughs> make it worth it. And uh, but no, it's great, great theology. Good stuff here. Martin Chemnitz's book on the two natures in Christ is literally the best uh, best book written on the topic you know since the Reformation. Yeah, just hands down. So uh, what we're gonna do? Uh, we're gonna dive into. We're gonna listen to uh, part eleven and twelve today. And uh, so why don't I turn the microphone over to Dr. Rosenblatt. Here is Dr. Rosenblatt on the uh, two natures in Christ. When we're done with this, we will uh, take a break, pay some bills, come back, and listen to part 12. Here we go. All right, this will be hurried this morning because I don't want to hold you over. When Chemnitz discover, uh, uh, ex- explicates the mode of this communication... Genus 3, which is where all the marbles are, 
the overall sense of what we're about to look at is this. By its inherent nature, blood does not forgive sin. And according to its inherent nature, flesh does not give life. But in this case, blood and flesh are the mode in which God has seen fit to save us. That's the overall sense of what we're going to look at. Fair enough? Now, next time we don't meet, Easter, and the time afterwards when we do is another key chapter, and it's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. I think I'm not talking out of school when I mentioned Chris, who said to me after class, but is he scripturally going to connect the dots between what he's saying here and the text of Holy Writ? And I said that is a perfectly good question, and he's going to devote time to doing it. Okay? All right. Now, very quickly, and then we'll call it a day. We have shown that the attributes belonging to the deity which according to scripture have been given or communicated to Christ in time, are not to be understood as having been given to his divine nature in time, but to his person according to his assumed human nature. This is the key. The deity of itself has always been and always will be perfect and immutable, in need of nothing. But because scripture insists that Christ has been given life and the authority to judge, and because scripture sometimes expressly mentions Christ's human nature as making alive, John 6, and his blood purifying our consciences from sin, Hebrews 9, and because scripture often adds a statement that it understands Christ according to that nature in which he suffered, died, and rose. Ephesians 2, you'll see the references there. We are going to speak of that these gifts have been given in the, to the person of Christ, particularly in his human nature. He lists... Um, Sayings from the ancient church that show that this is not anything new at all. Two, we've already demonstrated as well that this communication must not be understood in such a way that we introduce a commingling, conversion, equating, or abolition of either nature. Uh, Over and over and over and over again. The objectors say, but we cannot see or understand how this could be without a commingling. Chemnitz, answer. If scripture clearly teaches something, ought not the Christian accept what scripture testifies, even if he or she does not understand or grasp how this can take place? See the supper coming? For example, the message of the angel to Sarah or the message of the angel to Mary. With God, every matter is neither impossible nor difficult. 
Paul calls this not just a mystery, but a great mystery that God is manifested in flesh, in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3. Just because we cannot understand how does not mean we must take away from or detract from his flesh by our denials and contradictions of those things which Scripture clearly teaches. It should suffice for simple faith, obedient faith, even though we're not able to speak more fully or in greater detail on the mode of the communication, that we should accept it anyway on the basis that Scripture clearly teaches it. So we turn to the mode. Three, even nature itself, the physical world, furnishes us clear examples. He uses, first of all, the example of iron heated by fire and does an extended explication of that for three pages. Then the summary. I freely confess in my simplicity that when I'm compelled to speak or think about the divine attributes which Scripture teaches have been given to Christ in time according to his human nature, then I simply recall this simile, and I bow to it as a reliable and simple description. For in so doing, I do not detract from, but attribute to the assumed nature in Christ those things which Scripture says have been given to him. And on the other hand, I do not harm the fundamental teaching of the unimpaired difference between the natures and their essential attributes. Two, or also, says Chemnitz, Scripture itself points us to this simile. Think of the sun showing himself to Moses at the burning bush, or to John in the glowing brass, Exodus 3 and Revelation 1. Then another summary statement. Just as the divine essence itself is communicated to the the assumed nature, in the same way the attributes of the divine nature are communicated to the human nature through the personal union. For through the union, the whole fullness of the deity dwells personally in the human nature, the assumed nature, Colossians 2.9. Not with a simple, bare, or general presence only, as it dwells in the saints and angels, but in such a way that the entire deity shines forth in the assumed human nature. Over and over again, shines forth through, manifests itself through. And the humanity, in a sense, glows with this light and is united with the Logos. Just as the assumed nature has the full fullness of deity dwelling personally in it, Colossians 2.9, so also... It receives and possesses the whole majesty, power, and activity which are united personally with it and dwelling in it, not in such a way that they indwell with a separated or mere presence in the assumed nature or function separately, but rather in such a way that they shine forth in the assumed human nature and work with it and through it, so that the assumed nature, by virtue of its personal union with the Logos, can give life and can rule powerfully over all things. This is the real communication of the attributes of the divine nature without any commingling. Just as fire communicates to heated iron its power of shining and giving heat. Namely, the divine majesty and power of the Logos demonstrate, carry on, complete, and manifest the works which the Logos did by himself before the incarnation and still could do. But... Now, after the union, not from necessity, 
but from his own good pleasure, he performs them in and through the assumed human nature, especially those activities which pertain to the work of the Messiah. There remains a great generic difference between the divine and the human natures. Again, the divine nature in essence is life-giving and omnipotent and omniscient, and the human nature is in no way life-giving or omnipotent, essentially only by possession of the divine majesty and power of the Logos, personally united to itself, it makes all things alive, knows all, can do all, just as hot iron by virtue of its union with the fire can glow and give heat. Then he offers pages of corroboration of this from the figures used by the ancient writers. Again, to say, don't imagine for a minute this is innovating. This is very old. Uh, The other summary you can look at on your own. Then he adds, we are certainly not saying that the divine nature of the Logos could not or cannot perform its divine works without the ministration of the assumed humanity. He could have done so before his incarnation and still can. But by a singular graciousness, he wished to take our assumed nature into communion with his divine attributes, particularly as an instrument in the work of the Messiah. So that, one, he might give us in his person a definite pledge that our nature will be blessed, and two, that we may know that we have access to these works and have fellowship in them in the benefits of the Son of God, our King, Priest, and Head. In order to accomplish this, he had to be, uh, and to make us partakers in his works and benefits, he assumed human nature to our nature, became of the same substance with us, became our kinsman, our very brother, flesh of our flesh. All things, says Hebrews, except for sin. Then some sophistic arguments, he calls them, and his replies to them. Turn to the last page. I'll just point out one, the other you can do on your own. The clamor that always arises when we use the word koinonia, communion, or communication, Again, it in no, by no means includes or implies a conversion, abolition, or equating, an equating of the two natures. The words real or true, as in real communication or true communion, if someone says we're hiding an essential commingling or confusion of nature under this language, it's a lie. Such phrases explain and clarify the entire doctrine in a brief, clear, and simple way, and they protect it against all ideas of a merely verbal or essential or natural communication. So, overall, flesh by itself doesn't give life. Um, Humanity or blood of itself doesn't yield for us a freeing of our consciences, forgiven sin. But in this case... Surely by his decision, he makes it known to us by doing the great, greatest works of the Messiah, the saving, through flesh and blood. And if we were to pursue this, he would conquer death by dying. He would win over death by dying. That's straight St. Paul. Okay? All right, let me throw it open for questions. And next 
time, which we meet two weeks, not one week from today, I'm trying to work through not only that I would give you the references, but I would give them to you full text. I'll use the ESV. And I'll list them in the order he uses them. And then what I'll pass out to you is not just the full text of all of them, but in the beginning part, an outline of the work and comments with just the references on the significance of those. And then in the later pages, if you want to check them, the full text. And it's a boodle. This is where Chris will finally get to your question. Does the scripture do this or not? All right, we're open for questions. Wonderful. (laughs) Yes, Alice? Would you say that he could have accomplished it just by dying? Uh, Chemnitz doesn't do the, the intricate work here, but he says he could have accomplished this in his divine nature only, and the implication is in ways that we cannot guess. But he doesn't want to limit the sovereign God. He can do all things. Well, I heard the reason it caught my eye or my ear, actually, was that I heard uh, about, oh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, the Pope said that all they had to be concerned with was the death on the cross. Good for the Pope. No, I mean... um, but I mean, does that negate the resurrection? So No, no. I... No, almost everyone using shorthand, when they talk about the saving death of Christ, even if they don't say it, it's including the resurrection. Maybe we should say it more often, but it always does include it. Okay, thank you. The other thing, the passages that I think should occur to us, and I've mentioned this before, Gethsemane, if there be any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, the answer the next day was... No, it's that thing that Leon Morris, that reformed Anglican New Testament scholar talks about the divine necessity or that mysterious, it must be that. Now that's within the Trinity. And if we don't get it from the written text of scripture, we have no right to do anything other than label that we're guessing. But there is evidently within the Trinity, some divine must that this is going to take the death of the Son. I never realized it, even in catechism, that to rightly read the Old Testament, say Leviticus, was to point me forward to the real one. If I had gotten that verse about that he doesn't need the blood of goats and bulls, but I didn't. And so all of it looks forward to the great real sacrifice, and these are just analogies or pointers to it. Uh, Lots of bulls, lots of lambs, lots of goats, and all of that, but they really are just pointers to something that's coming. I know if I had been a Jew, I know where I would have fastened. I would have fastened on Moses, and I would have been dead wrong. Uh, I told you about that Jewish actuary who went from being Reformed Jewish to conservative Jewish, insurance company actuary, mathematical genius. And as he did that over the weeks, I happened to be out to lunch with David, and I said, how are you doing with the Torah, David? He said, well, I'm doing a lot better than I was before. I said, that's great. How about the part where you're not uh, making it? How about the part where you're failing? 
David looked at me and said, of all people, I hate saying this to you, but unless there's a Messiah, I have no hope. I said, David, you're a true Jew. That is, he got Abraham being definitive over Moses later. So it's exactly what Paul argues in Galatians. But I know I wouldn't have gotten it. I would have been part of the... I know I would have been part of uh, that group that said, let's storm Jerusalem and make you king. I'm wired that way. Stupid? Yeah, really stupid. Uh, But let's take the Romans. Um, And in the same way, I would have inclined to Moses, not to Abraham. Does that make any sense? Go, go. But Moses leads the people out of captivity. Christ leads us out of captivity of sin. I mean, you're thinking that I would have done better than I would have. I wouldn't have been thinking Exodus. I would have been thinking the Ten Commandments. You're you're imagining that I would have done better than I would have. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I would have been defending Moses. Good Lord, have mercy. Yeah. As I said in the beginning, the key thing is it doesn't inhere in flesh in general to give life. But the Bible's going to talk about my flesh gives life. And it doesn't inhere in blood to forgive sin, but he's going to say, my blood forgives sin. If you get nothing out of today other than that, that's what it's about. He is communicating, the, the, the divine nature operates by the use of his human nature. And it's, said Chemnitz, a warning to us, don't try and become spiritual. The most spiritual thing a confessor of the Augsburg Confession does is opens up his mouth and lets the pastor put bread into it and opens up his lips and lets a cup carry wine down his gullet. That is the deepest piety in Lutheranism. Drink this for the forgiveness of sins and eat this for the forgiveness of sins. That is our deepest piety. So it means that our style of spirituality is to receive from an incarnate son his flesh and his blood and believe that it's life-giving. Again, think of Luther. What is it to be prepared for the supper? Who is worthy To partake, he who believes these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Done. I'm thinking Moses and getting my panties all in a knot. Mm -mm. Says Luther, no. He is prepared for this who simply believes these words. There's a way in which we can say it is good theology that saves even though some 
uneducated Appalachian Scottish woman only got to go through second grade, and at dying, she realizes, all I've got's that cross, that blood. Other than that, I got nothing but my sin. She's a great theologian. She's a great theologian. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills, and come back uh, to, to the next lecture on this uh, topic. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning. In one way, in some way, your good theology may be the thing that saves you, which also means that bad theology may damn you. Liked his illustration there regarding the Appalachian woman. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website. Uh, that's on the internet at fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a fantastic way for you to support us. And uh, as far as the financial outlay is concerned, it's, the six ninety five is actually pretty nominal. And the idea is, is that we're trying to spread our financial support across a uh, large amount of uh, listeners uh, that pay a little bit. So that uh, you know, so that what we can do then is uh, even out our monthly giving, so that uh, uh, we can better budget f- for our growth and, and expenses and things like that. And not only that, it, it it makes it so we don't have a lot of peaks and valleys. We don't have uh, you know certain months where it's way up, and then other months where it's way down, and it, it, that's just crazy. So if uh, you're not a member of our crew already, then uh, please, please join our crew. And, of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can uh, make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is uh, part 12 of the uh, Two Natures in Christ. Here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Okay, we're at the heart of things. And I'm probably going to give you three separate sets on this uh, chapter because we're right at the core of it. And it'll probably be at least two sessions, maybe three. Then after that, it's just addenda. But one of those addenda is liberal canonic theory, and one of the addenda is this and the Lord's Supper. You know, those are the later chapters. But right now, we're in it. And what you're going to get a little of today, and certainly more of next time, is passages. I'll print them out for you, at least that's the plan. I'll print them out from the ESV, so they're part of the paper that you get. Um, But we're right at the core. Okay? Chapter 24. All right. Scripture passages on the communication of the majesty, the majestic genus or the third genus 
how, again, keep in mind his simile that he uses. The simile is iron heated by fire. That as iron is heated, it glows with heat, but it doesn't become fire. The natures aren't aren't, uh, blurred. Fire remains fire, iron remains iron, but somehow in this kind of a circumstance, um, the showing of the deity of Christ is through his body. He's just going to hammer away on the humanity and the body. This is straight from Luther at Christmas time. There's nothing um, that's, that's strangely innovative or anything. Okay, Colossians 2.9, the foremost passage. In Christ dwells the whole fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9, he calls it the foremost passage in Paul. We've already examined the passage in chapter 9, the individual words in the passage. We've shown already how they describe the personal union within Christ. Paul had already attributed reconciliation, peace with God, and other blessings to Christ's body, to his flesh, to his blood, to his death, Colossians 1. And he did this in order that we may know that the benefits are well-established, that they're efficacious, and that the restoration which took place in the assumed nature of the only begotten pertains also to us, his brothers. Paul says that the whole fullness of the Godhead dwells in the body or the assumed nature of Christ. Then he tacks in there a few sayings from uh, the fathers, how they explain the verb bodily, not meaning a transfusion of the natures, not a commingling of the natures, but as a hypostatic union. Says Chemnitz, it isn't necessary for us to summon up various strange interpretations because we have Paul himself interpreting it. We have no need to guess what he meant, made by, what he meant by you've been made complete in him, Colossians 2, or he is the head, Colossians 2. For he who grasps and holds to Christ grows up through this ministration into the increase of God. Luther would say in simpler language, to have grasped Christ is to have grasped everything to do with God. Huh? For in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. Part of this has to do with what was going on at Colossae. In Colossae, you had a, a different form of, of Judaizers than we're used to in Galatians but they're still Judaizers. And basically what they said was this. It's great that you have come to Christ as your mediator, Savior, Messiah, all that. It's great, but are you sure you've covered all your bases? Well, what were those Judaizers teaching? Well, you can't eat this and you can't drink that. And have you paid attention to the moons? You know, you've got to cover yourself with regard to the moons and the celestial events and all this crap, huh? in addition to the cross of Christ. So the book, Colossians, is going up against that style of uh, Judaizing. 
diet, moons, seasons, covering your bases. Jesus is great, but, you know, cover your bases too. And so into that, Paul places Christ as everything, and you don't need nothing else. You might have had conversations with people who want to talk about spirituality. God help you. Huh? Um, Look, everything having to do with who God is and his care for you was shown in Christ. He's all you need. Luther used to talk about through the heart of Christ to the heart of God. That is, people who say, I think I'm okay with the son. It's the father who scares me. And Luther went up against that. To be in Christ is to know how you stand with God. Relax. Huh? There's no something other in addition to the incarnate God. You've covered your all bases and particularly the Father. Right? That's the fight that's going on. All right. He, Jesus, possessed the whole fullness of the Godhead bodily in his assumed nature, not just for his own benefit, but also that we, who are his members, flesh of his flesh, and his brothers might have all the things that are necessary for our redemption, liberation, and defense against our enemies. Grace, reconciliation, acceptance, hearing and help before God, all things necessary for our conversion, illumination, justification, sanctification, life, preservation, and salvation. Chemnitz, all these blessings, I say, in perfect and complete fullness we have in Christ who has for us become incarnate, was crucified, and rose again. This is as from the head to its members. That's the, the uh, allusion that he uses. Paul, there is no need of any other elements of this world for our salvation. We possess his fullness in Christ. Then he does a section on ministration, Ephesians 4, activity, the passages are there, and fulfillment. Lest we get the idea that this ministration comes into being from the natural properties of the flesh, that's in general, or from the regular gifts of grace to Christ's body, flesh, or blood, gifts which he might even share with us, but Paul says, Here we have a unique situation. Paul speaks of the personal indwelling or union of the whole fullness of the Godhead in this one guy. The saving qualities of the fullness of Christ's deity flows to us as his members, not directly, but through his human nature, that nature by which both head and members are related to each other. In our flesh he redeemed us. For this reason, Colossians 1 specifically mentions the body, the flesh, and the blood of Christ. And Colossians 2.9, the word bodily. You can read the quotation there on your own. In all of this, the divine nature of the Son of God works in communion with his assumed nature, his flesh. Not in the way that water flows through a tube, but with the cooperation of the assumed human nature, not by an outpouring of the natures, but through a personal indwelling in unity, that in, by, with, and through the assumed flesh nature, 
This divine ministration activity fulfillment of which Paul speaks can take place in us. Thus the whole church, according to both of Christ's natures, as our head bestows his fullness on everybody, all in the church. Scripture describes how this fullness of deity operated through his human nature as he performed his miracles. We've done some of that before. It shows itself. It wasn't always hidden. And many times, Chemnitz says, for our benefit, what he could have done invisibly, he doesn't. He does it by the use of his body. Um, We are all tending to Gnostic, Luther said, trying to be more spiritual than God himself. And Chemnitz is trying to just clobber it. The crowd all sought to touch him since divine power was flowing out of him and he was healing all. The woman touching his garment, he immediately knew that strength and power had gone out of him. Someone touched me, for I know that power has gone out of me, and so forth. He, uh, or the mud on the blind guy's eye, he spits in the dirt, makes mud, and puts it on his eye. Says Chemnitz, did he have to use mud? No. We have plenty of examples where he didn't. He says to the centurion, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Go, your daughter will live. He doesn't need mud. He doesn't need um, these things. But, says Chemnitz, we who try to be so spiritual ought to be learning something here. His flesh is what he chose. His flesh is what gives us life. Not that flesh usually gives life, but his flesh does. His blood does forgive sins. Paul concludes, he who grasps and clings to this head, uh, which in Colossians he calls the body, flesh, and blood of Christ, at the same time grasps, holds, and possesses the whole fullness of the Godhead. For this fullness dwelt in his human nature, akin to us, same substance with us except for sin, personally united with us. That's the way he is willed to be sought, found, apprehended, and possessed. Hmm? And here I have in mind today's American Gnostics, the spiritual. Gag. The gospel is an offense to those who are looking for spirituality. This flesh, this body, that afternoon, on this cross, and that blood, and they'll have none of it. Fine. At least you heard it. No, I'm not spiritual. I'm a Christian. A theme that Luther hammered away at, for in his absolute deity, we cannot approach him. We are alienated and barred from him because of our sin. But now, since this fullness has been made akin to us in the flesh, we're permitted to approach And since we have an approach and access to the assumed nature of Christ, we also, through this same means, flesh, blood, death, have an approach to the whole fullness of the deity of the Logos. We're brought into fellowship not only with the Son, but also with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Kierkegaard used to talk about the offense of the particularity of Christianity. This particular guy, this particular city, this particular afternoon, this particular cross, this particular blood. And 
This is, a, this is an offense to people who want something more glorious, more spiritual, more something or other. And in Christianity, you cannot, says Chemnitz, get away from this particularity. Cannot. It's Christianity itself. Then Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We'll look at the circumstances of that text and compare it with other passages of Scripture. Circumstances, Jesus, after his resurrection, showed his body alive and resurrected to more than 500 brethren. That's 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> we also heard that marvelous Thomas account, if you were there. Um, apologists love the Thomas account. Why? Because Thomas doubted it. And all apologists have had to go up against their own inner doubt. Hmm? Until he, until I put my finger into his hands or thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Then when Jesus graciously says, come over here, Thomas, and put your hand into my side and put your fingers into my wounds and be no longer unbelieving but believing, we don't know from the text whether Thomas did. All we can tell is he looked at him and said, my Lord and my God. Does the text say he fell before him? I can't remember. John 20. It's the highest Christological confession in all of John's gospel. It's the culmination of John's gospel is the Thomas account. My Lord and my God. All these guys are Jewish, remember? So in circumstances like that, um, you have a way of solving the, quote, religious question objectively. If your friends are trying to overthrow Christianity, give them a clue as to how they can do it. Not by verse after verse after verse after verse that are problem texts. Say, no, 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 why don't you go for the jugular? I'll tell you how to overthrow it. Show that the resurrection accounts are myths or fables or don't describe what really happens. You got us. Go after that one. Take the big one. And you'll have done it. You'll have overthrown Christianity. And I'll leave it. I'll leave it. I'm not interested in the ethics. Um, I'm too bent for that. Uh, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, Anyway, so... In, in the circumstances, uh, Jesus has been raised, some doubted. They imagined, of course, that the son was present in some outward assumed appearance, a ghost, but not in his own body. That had been nailed to the cross and buried. That's why they were afraid when they would see him in those post-resurrection appearances. It's a ghost. To people like me with science backgrounds, I can't tell you how important the Thomas account is or the one by the Sea of Galilee. Have you anything here to eat? Ghosts don't eat fish for breakfast. Those are tremendously important. He came closer, revealed himself near at hand so that he might be seen closely, spoke to them in his own familiar voice, demonstrated to them the resurrection of his true body. Now, in contrast to his earlier seeming weakness and subjection, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. It's the same as what's written in the Trinitarian 
Or in 2 Corinthians 13.4, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. The son of the living God from eternity has had all power over all things. Um, And he never surrendered it. But thank God he showed it once in a while. Didn't always hide it or I'd have no basis for believing the things that were invisible. Think of the paralytic. His friends bring him on a cot, but they can't get through the crowd, so they pull the tiles off the roof and lower him down into the room where Jesus was. And comes this line, um, Be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. In the back of the room, the Pharisees mumble, Who can forgive sins but God? Were they correct? They were. It was correct. So he heals him, but the preface to it is, or first of all, he reads their minds. Why are some of you murmuring amongst yourselves? For which is easier to say, not to do? Which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? There have been some bad sermons on this. Which is easier to say? To say. Your sins are forgiven. Why? It's invisible. But he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. He linked the invisible with what he was about to do visibly. Um, so there's a, there's a strong connection for guys like me uh, with what he's doing in Miracle that I can identify that this is not just some other counterfeit Messiah. Alice? Um, that isn't the one. I think it's, you're probably talking about the man born blind in John 9. And the, disciple, the disciples are the one who asked it. Well, he, well, he just, uh, in, this, in the paralytic thing, he, he goes to what the guy really needs. We all need it. He said, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. He, he isn't talking about your basic need is your paralysis. Your basic need is the forgiveness of sin, and that's what he does immediately. We're the ones who think my basic need is my paralysis. I would think that. I need healing. Hmm? And he does that too, but not first. My basic need, I don't know until the Bible tells me so or my pastors tell me so. I imagine all sorts of basic needs that I've got. I need a Shelby Cobra. (laughs) One of the originals, not a replica, though I hear the replicas are great. Or I need a 57 porthole T-Bird. Curb weight, I hear, was two tons. They must have built it out of girders. I need a 57 porthole T-Bird. That's what I do inside of me. And until my pastors tell me, no, Rod, let me tell you, because God in his scripture has told you what you really need, and you've lost track of it. Now, the parallel in John 9, the man born blind, thank God the disciples asked what they asked, because I would have been thinking it. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Answer, watch this. 
That's not exactly the translation. But, <laughs> but in order that you might see the glory of God. Huh? Mm-hmm. But I'm glad they asked it. Boy, am I glad they asked that because I'm thinking it. Okay? All right. So he never lost or laid aside this power, but when he willed to do so, he manifest, showed it, demonstrated it, and thank God he did. Because if all things had to do with just believe it, I'm walking away. There are all kinds of people saying to me, just believe it. Imams, wizards, magicians. So, in and through the assumed nature, uh, after he's laid aside his humiliation, he will exercise his divine power, which had previously been hidden, but not, thank God, all the time. And this he received in time according to his human nature. Now, he uses Daniel 7 here. And as nearly as I can figure out, Daniel 7 is the deliverer come down from heaven, um, the son of man. And as nearly as I can figure out, Chemnitz here is using the phrase son of man to talk about Christ's human nature. Um, I, I'll have to go to my, to my exegete brothers on the campus because the son of man in Daniel is a heavenly figure. He comes down to earth, but he's a deliverer from heaven. And son of man, I think, and I do this publicly, son of man is an attribution of his deity, that he comes from heaven, not something primarily about his humanity. Why did Jesus call himself the son of man? Well, we have to guess, so I'm just guessing here. They were under Rome's heel. When you're in subjection and suffering under some stupid state or some stupid Caesar, um, Christians tend to read the apocalyptic books. You're looking for deliverance. So what were the Jews of Jesus' day reading? Daniel. Daniel. He picked his self-titled Son of Man from Daniel, the man from heaven come to earth to establish justice and righteousness throughout the earth, son of man. So I'll stand corrected on that, but uh, I can tell the way he's done this over and over and over again. He's using son of man as an attribution of Christ's real humanity. Okay? All right, same way. All antiquity has always understood and interpreted this statement in Matthew, as we shall see in the following chapter. All power, all authority, divine power. All power in heaven and on earth, uh, the psalm from which he draws it. Um, again, divine power in one particular man. Not that this power is emptied out upon his humanity or transferred to it apart. No, no, no. Nor are there two omnipotencies in Christ, one divine, the other human. No, no, no. It is the divine and eternal power itself, which is an essential property of the divine nature, which through the union dwells personally in the assumed nature from the first moment of the union. All things have been given me by my Father, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He didn't make use of it all the time, but enough that we know he spoke the truth. 
that showed itself fully and demonstrably in and through the, the assumed nature. And after he laid aside his infirmities, thus the assumed nature brought into a communion, full manifest association with his divine power as heated iron through its union with the fire comes to share in and use the power of giving heat and light. What all this power which is given in time to Christ in heaven and on earth includes? Well, Christ is about to give his apostles the command and authority to gather the church throughout the world by the ministry of word and sacrament. He prefaces his remarks by speaking of the full and complete power which had been given to him in heaven and on earth. That power was given to him by the Lord in his service, said Paul, for edification, not destruction. You can look at the passages, maybe in a later edition I'll uh, insert them for you. The power given to the apostles for the necessary work of pastors is neither a natural characteristic nor a created quality nor a natural gift nor an attribute peculiar to the apostles themselves. It is a divine strength or power which assists them in their ministry and works through it so that the apostles might be assured that the things they were doing in their ministry on earth were not doubtful, invalid, vain, or useless, but certain. In instituting the ministry, sending forth the apostles, Christ asserts all power in heaven and earth has been given to him. He promised that with all his authority, strength, and might, and efficacy, he would be with the apostolic ministry in the church, not only in the apostles, but till the end of the world. Through the personal union, all power was given or communicated in time to the human nature of Christ. Just over and over and over and over again. Through it, from it, as from the head to the church, this power was imparted, communicated to the ministerial office, to the church, through his presence. You can do that on your own. But his key thing is, for divine, the divine nature of the Son is exercised, fulfilled, carried on in the ministerial office in the church, in, with, and through the assumed nature, according to which is, he is our brother, and he is flesh of our flesh, or we are flesh of his flesh. Now, how this ought to bring comfort to both teachers and learners or hearers. From the divine power and efficacy that's promised and present with both the ministerial office and the church in Christ, who according to both natures is head of it for all time, therefore all this power, which Matthew 28, 18 describes as having been given to Christ, refers principally to the activity, power, and efficacy which he demonstrates, shows, and manifests in his kingdom and his church according to and by both natures. Now, if you don't see the Lord's Supper coming, just think about it. Huh? The both natures now. Okay? Then some controversies, we won't do that. Next edition, the passages on page 6, I'll have... Uh, um, imported from the ESV edition so that they'll be there for you. I'll give you another edition of this later on. Okay, uh, let's throw it up for questions. Before I do, let me remind you, I'm going to be absent next Sunday. I'm going to be at Lake Elsinore at First Lutheran. Uh, my grandson's being baptized and Christed. When you're hinting at the the text there, getting towards the Lord's Supper or pointing towards the Lord's Supper, um, the question is, do we see both natures of Christ in the Lord's Supper or just the what body? Do you mean, are you, how are you using see? Do we have? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
the whole Christ given to you for the complete instant forgiveness of all of your sin. Yep. Yep. Yep, that's what he's going to claim, and he's going to go to the mat on it. Don't split him. Don't split him. I'm going to have to take a look at the, uh, the way that the New World Translation translates this uh, Colossians 2.9, you know? Sure. Because in Christ dwells the whole fullness of the Godhead right. bodily. They must change it. I haven't seen that, but they it, must. You know, there are a lot they missed. There are a lot they missed. If you... If you want, I'll give you an article by, by the dean of um, New Testament critical studies, Bruce Metzger of Princeton. In the 1950s, he wrote an article in the biblical expositor called The Jehovah's Witnesses in Jesus Christ. And in that, he traces all the ones about his deity that they've missed in their New World Translation. So I went through and marked those. And then I put a map for myself on the inside of their Greek New Testament so when the JWs would come to the door, I'd pull out their New World Translation and trace through passages on Jesus being God. I loaned that out to a dentist in La Jolla and lost it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but you could do the same thing. I have the PDF of Metzger's article. It's uh, free uh, now out in the digital world. <clears throat> and I just use that as my map to mark passages in my New World Translation. They haven't, they haven't gotten rid of all of them. Yeah. Well, the New World Translation also is it's online, and the way they've got it set up, it's really easy. You can download it, you know, chapter by chapter. Okay. So if, if you want to get that. Yeah, I'm kind of a book guy. I want to well, highlight it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, if you're talking with a Je- Jehovah's Witness, don't bother with Christmas or blood transfusions or birthdays. <laughs> Ah, go right to the jugular. For in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. And if you, they've still got it in their New World Translation to do it from their own translation. Arianism, I don't care about Christmas and tra- blood transfusions, but I do care that Arianism from the very start was a denial that the Son was eternal or a denial that the Son was God. Um, that's what counts. Forget all the rest of it. I think the Arianism, Jehovah's Witness, all of it stems from our desire to be greater and not to be so humble that God would be God. Mm-hmm. And in the sermon today, you know, I, I think it's tough for some Christians to think, oh my gosh, I'm not that smart. I'm not that clever. Yeah, I can't I, outthink God. You could be exactly right, Alice. Things that have to do with inner motives, I don't know unless they tell me, but I sure suspect them. It just seems that that's a common thread. Yeah, if you well. Were, they'll say to me at the door, if you really understood. Yeah. If I were brighter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the Christian gospel, the incarnation and the atoning death and so forth all of those are offenses to our, us, and especially in our century, which is the century of therapy me. One of the things I'm going to be doing in Manhattan is justification is objective. 
And what I'm going to be going up against is, but, but where's my part? Huh? Where, do, where do I fit in? You fit in as recipient. Well, don't I contribute anything? Yeah, sin. Uh, as long as we've put Arianism down, maybe we can move on to another heresy. Um, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So it sounds like the Spirit and the Father are incarnate as well. What we, uh, let me see if I can tweak that a little bit and still fa- stay faithful to the passage. And you'll get this because you're a philosopher. Whatever it is to be God, Jesus was fully that. I'm trying to avoid the problem. Well, I, I know you're trying to avoid the problem. Um, Remember again what he's writing against. He's I, writing I, against those who say you don't have all your bases covered with just Jesus. Right. It sounds like if you, if you go that route, you say, well, the reason he says that is because he's fully God. Then isn't that splitting the Holy Spirit and the Father apart and saying, well, the God part's the important and not their distinguishing? Well, there is a second. Remember the section in here that where I quoted, and you also have the Father and the Son in having, or you also have the Spirit and the Father in having the Son. But maybe that's not directly to what you're asking. Well, it, I mean, there I can't are definitely do it passages all. that read this way. I mean, the, this one's a good one. And then the Isaiah passage, unto us a child is born, yeah. a son is given, you know. And, Government will be upon his shoulders. Right, and his name is the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace and the Wonderful Counselor. Yeah. Right, I mean, yeah. the three persons of the God had yeah. mentioned. Yeah. But it sounds like all of God is incarnate, which is what it, I know that that goes too far. Yeah. All I could do is parallel passages, and you've already quoted one of the great ones in Isaiah. Um, But if I'm short on passages, I think it's my place to say I don't know. That's typically Lutheran. Calvinists will answer it for you. They've got to answer everything. (laughs) Okay. Well, there you have it, the latest installment on the uh, Two Natures in Christ as Dr. Rod Rosenblatt works through the book uh, of the same name by uh, Martin Chemnitz. Uh, The second uh, Luther, uh, they refer to him as that in in the Reformation. And uh, just great, great, great stuff. Yeah, this is meaningful Christianity as opposed to the meaningless Christianity that we continue to get from the vapid, feel-good, psychologizing, uh, self-help genre-type sermons that are supposedly make you a doer of the Word, but you, you never really hear the Word there, do you? Anyway, yeah, this is just a great counterbalance. You know, Good, thoughtful, reasonable, respectful look at what God has revealed about Himself and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in His Word. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, uh, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.